Well, when we still lived in, in Peru a number of years ago and had our permanent residence there, we made a trip back to the U.S. to see our families, and it had been a couple of years. And so we landed in Atlanta, and there was this sea of people in the immigration and passport control area. Many of you know that room well. And the lanes were all full, and it felt frantic, and we were already tired and strung out and feeling out of sorts entering the U.S. again. However, being American citizens, we got to avoid the worst lines and got into some lines that were a little uh, shorter. And so we finally made it to the immigration officer booth and presented our passports to the immigration officer. And he looked at us in the midst of this sea of people and he paused and he smiled at us and he looked us in the eyes and he said to us, welcome home. And it felt incredibly good. It was like in him, our country affirmed that we belonged there and was glad we were back. And we took this deep breath and the tension lifted and we were like, yeah, we belong here. Uh, We've been so looking forward to this moment. We are home. And you know that feeling, even if you love to travel, you can't wait to get back home. You step across the threshold of your house. You feel good. It's your place. It's where you belong. It's where you have your history, your memories, and your home. Deep sigh, your bed, your den, your home again. Pastor commentator Tim Chester says it this way. He says, deep in the heart of every person is a longing for home. And he says, ultimately, this longing reflects the human story. Humanity suffers a deep sense of dislocation. We feel homeless. That's because we were cast out of our first home. And that's why even when we're physically home, oftentimes we have this sense. A philosopher might call it the existential angst. So young people, if you wake up and you feel out of sorts, just tell your parents, I have an existential angst today. But we often are aware that even when we're physically home, we're not in our true home, not yet. And so C.S. Lewis's reflection of mere Christianity, just one of my favorite quotes, He says this, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care on the one hand never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other, never to mistake them for something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country. I must make it the main object of my life to press on to that other country and to help others do the same. That is tremendous. And so today we come to the tabernacle. And the rest of Exodus deals with it. And it's an arduous 
block of material. It goes from chapter 25 to chapter 40. It's a big deal to God. We entitled this sermon series, Redeemed for Relationship, and we've just come past chapters 19 through 24 in the covenant ratification ceremony where God formalizes that relationship. The point of leaving Egypt was to enter into that formal ceremony to say, you are my God and I am your person. And now on the basis of that formal covenant, committed, intimate relationship, now till the rest of Exodus, God secures and develops that fellowship and intimacy with them by designing and commissioning the building of a tabernacle. And brothers and sisters, God does it all to know you and that you would know him. The tabernacle is the greatest of all biblical visual aids. It's, as Tim Chester says again, I love it, it's a map showing us the way home. It's a replica of God's home. In some way, through physical things, God gives us a replica of His dwelling place in heaven. It's God's great teaching tool to instruct us what He's like and how guilty, corrupted sinners like us cast out of our first home can be saved, can enter and enjoy relationship with Him again, how we can go home. So it points forward to the one who ultimately fulfills all the functions of the building in His multifaceted work, Jesus, our true tabernacle. And so you see, we have a whole lot of reading to do this morning, but I promise I'm not going to do it. We're just going to do one small passage, Exodus 25, 1 through 9. This is really a sermon on 15 chapters. 25, 1. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him you shall receive the contribution from me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them, gold and silver and bronze and blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twisted linen, goat's hair, tanned ram's skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamp, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, so you shall make it grass withers, flowers fade, and this good word endures to the end. And so let me give you an overall sketch 
real briefly, of the tabernacle and its furnishings. And this is largely out of chapter 26. Chapter 26 describes the tabernacle proper. That is, the two chief rooms, you remember. There's the holy place, and then there's the most holy place. And we find in chapter 26, mainly by the dimensions of the boards, we learn the tabernacle proper is 15 feet wide and 45 feet long. It's not big. It's from here to there and over here. Uh, The first room, the holy place, was a rectangle, 15 by 30. And the next, the most important room of the whole tabernacle complex, the most holy place, was a perfect cube. It was 15 by 15 by 15, a perfect cube. The tent over the tabernacle proper, the holy place and most holy place, was four layers thick. The interior layer, the one you'd see, was composed of fine white linen with this expensive blue and purple and scarlet yarn and cherubim intricately embroidered into it. And this white linen with the embroidered cherubim was then covered with goat hair cloth, the common tent material, and then with ram skins and with hides of sea cows to protect it from the elements. The most holy place opened to the east and there was a veil. It was a thick veil, four inches thick. It required, according to the Jewish Talmud, 100 men to move it. So the most holy place, separated by this veil from the holy place, facing east, and this veil was comprised of fine white linen with that ornate blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, intricately embroidered cherubim prominently displayed on it. Entering the holy place, also you accessed it from the east, and there was this ornate linen screen, again, white linen, fine needlework of blue, purple, scarlet yarn, but no cherubim on that screen. The metal structure and the gilding of the boards and the furnishings of the tabernacle proper were either gold or silver. In all, one ton of gold was used. Two tons of silver. You entered a place of gold and silver. Chapter 25, uh, together with chapter 30, describe the furnishings of the tabernacle proper. So in the most holy place, you had the most important piece of furniture, the Ark of the Covenant. In the holy place, you had three pieces of furniture. You had the altar of incense right by the thick veil. Then on the southern wall, you had the golden lampstand. And on the northern wall, you had the tabernacle, uh, excuse me, the table of bread. Well, chapter 27 details the court of the tabernacle, and the court of the tabernacle is that open area that surrounded the tabernacle proper. 
So white linen curtains fastened together, made a wall 150 feet long and 75 feet wide and eight feet tall. And the gilded wood and metal structure giving shape to the courtyard was comprised of some silver, part of that two tons, and then mainly of bronze. It was a ton of bronze, a ton and a half of bronze. And the courtyard, like the tabernacle proper, opened to the east. The courtyard's screen entrance matched the screen entrance to the holy place. White linen, finely embroidered with needlepoint, blue, purple, scarlet yarn, intentionally connecting the entrance to the courtyard to the entrance to the holy place. There were no cherubim on that screen. And there were two pieces of furniture located in the courtyard, right in the center, in a straight trajectory from the opening to the courtyard to the holy place. The first one you'd come to is the bronze altar, and then you'd come to the bronze basin. I want to say several things about this. So first, if you noticed in our reading, God commands the tabernacle and all its furnishings to be made with contributions from the people. Did you see that? And they got a lot, gave a lot of valuable things for the construction of the temple. It says in 25.2, from every man whose heart moves him. Later in chapter 35, it says it even more emphatically, whoever is of generous heart, everyone whose heart stirred him, everyone in whom the Spirit moved him. It took a lot of precious materials and they just gave it. And what is it teaching us? Well, first, where did they get it? You know, they're wandering in a desert. But don't you remember that when they left, don't you remember that when they left Egypt, God moved in the heart of the Egyptians. They went to their neighbors and said, give me gold and silver and blue, purple and scarlet yarn. And they gave it to them such that God said they plundered the Egyptians. Grace upon grace, in addition to rescuing them from slavery, God, in a, in a way, paid them for their services. And now he asks, give me a contribution for my dwelling in your midst. And it's even more emphatic after God forgives them once they rebel against him with the golden calf. And God forgives them and they are overwhelmed with the grace of God to them after they spurned him so abruptly with the calf and being forgiven moves their hearts to give whatever such that the craftsmen say, no more, it's too much. And what it teaches us is the tabernacle was never just this formal ritual. The benefit to the people came as man's heart was overwhelmed with the grace of God and the gospel to come. And it's the same for you and me as we come to the Lord's Day every Sunday. Second, God requires the tabernacle to be made exactly as He shows Moses on the mountain. Did you see that in verse 9? Exactly as I showed you as Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and God gave him this 3D replica of heaven and said, make this tabernacle exactly as you're seeing my plan. And He repeats this three other times in Exodus. And what it tells us is that God and God alone devises the way back to Himself. And our best intentions and good ideas can't do it. We are sinful people. 
God makes the way back home. Third, in the tabernacle, God makes His home with His people. He comes to dwell in their midst, verse 8 of chapter 25, so that the tabernacle is actually called a dwelling. That's the literal word. It's a dwelling. So the question for us is, how do I get back home? Well, God has to make His home with us. To call God's place a dwelling means that God moves into the neighborhood. And God makes His permanent address with His people. God becomes a neighbor to them. It's called a tent, even a tent of meeting, because God wants to meet with His people. It shows God's humility. God lives in a tent just like the Israelites live in tents. If you're doing it, I'm doing it. His tent has rooms and a yard and a fireplace. Just like every Israelite's tents had rooms and a yard and a fireplace. He's one of them and one with them. They've got portable houses and so does he right next door to theirs. They've got to pack up and travel to the promised land and so does he. For us to be saved, for God must come to us and make his home with us. Fourth, God makes his dwelling holy. That's why in verse 8, he calls it a sanctuary. It's a holy place. It's where God is set apart to be worshipped and exalted and praised. He's set apart from us. Um, the, the root of sanctuary is holy. And so the splendor of the tabernacle displayed this. The idea is that, yes, God lives in a tent. He's next door to you. But it's a tent unlike any other tent you've ever seen because it's God's. And with God's tent in their midst, every day, Israel woke up and was faced with a very hard reality. And the hard reality that each Israelite was faced with is that though God was very near, He was also inaccessible. Though He was close by, He was also far away because almost none of them could ever go inside the two chief rooms. The holy place, only the priests on duty could. And the most holy place, you recall, only the high priest, and only that once a year. So every Israelite wakes up and says, well, God is in my midst, but He's so far from me, and it's inaccessible. And furthermore, these two chief rooms, and especially the veil of the most holy place, decorated so elaborately with those cherubim, underscored to the people that access to God's holy presence was denied them. You remember the cherubim of the exclusive rank of angel that is around the throne of God in heaven that guards the holy. But you also recall that the cherubim are those angels that stood at the tree of life with a flaming sword when Adam and Eve rebelled against God and cast Him out of the garden and they guarded access to the tree of life to sinful man. And so God is saying through those cherubim, you sinner can't enter here. But He's saying not absolutely, for there is a way back. And your representative, the high priest, can enter once a year by the blood of the sacrifice. 
Fifth, God brings a bit of heaven to earth. Again, both the majesty of the place and the cherubim indicate this. And we'll see in a minute, the furniture does as well. But now notice the whole complex is divided into three spaces intentionally. Just like the mountain of God, Sinai was divided into three tiers. The people could worship at the foot. Then Moses and the 70 elders and the priests go halfway up after the sacrifice and they have a meal in God's presence and see him through a sapphire floor. And then Moses goes up to the top, entering, as it were, heaven itself to commune with God for 40 days, three tiers. The tabernacle is God's mobile mountain. It's heaven on earth, but it also goes back to Eden And Eden was a three-tiered space as you had the world and then Eden and the Garden of Eden. It was a mountain garden sanctuary where God communed with His people. It was the outskirts of heaven was the Garden of Eden. And that's why the tabernacle, courtyard, and holy place and most holy place opened to the east. Man was exiled out east and man comes back east. You're going back to Eden when you enter the courtyard, and you're doing so by the blood. Well, let's look at the furnishings and see how they're a signpost for our way back home. Imagine you're a high priest on the Day of Atonement. We're not going to go through the whole ceremony, but just imagine that you could go to the courtyard and go all the way into the most holy place. So you enter the east gate and into the courtyard. It's the only way in. There's not two ways in. Immediately when you enter the courtyard, you come face to face with the biggest piece of furniture there. And what's that piece of furniture? It's a seven and a half by seven and a half by four and a half big bronze altar. Morning and evening, whole burnt offerings are offered on that altar. Then with two million people sinning all the time, you have sin offerings and guilt offerings, peace offerings. Constantly, it's a bloody, smelly mess. That's what you encounter when you enter the courtyard. You could only only enter. You couldn't go any other way through the blood of the lamb to pay for sin. Then you'd pass the bronze altar, you'd come to the bronze basin, and the high priest would have to wash his hands and wash his feet at the bronze basin before he offered anything on the altar or before he entered the most or the holy place. And if he didn't do it, he would die. And what it signified to all the people was that he was dirty and they were dirty and they needed to be washed clean of their sin to get in God's presence. Then after washing, the high priest would enter that ornate screen entrance to the holy place, going into the eastern door there. And he entered the holy place, and on his left hand was the golden lampstand. It was 75 pounds of pure gold, one piece, five feet tall. It was designed like an almond tree, a central trunk and three branches on either side, each ending in a leafy bud, which opened into an almond flower into which a receptacle with oil was placed for your lamp. And the priests had to keep this lamp burning continually, all the time. Without it, 
under a four-layer tent, it would be dreadfully dark. And so the lamp, the golden candle stand, symbolized God as light. God's light shines in the darkness. It symbolized that God is always home in His house, and He leaves the light on for you. It also symbolized that God is life, since it was shaped as a tree in the various growth stages of buds and blossoms and flowers. And being a tree encountered from the east, surrounded by cherubim, what did it signify? It symbolized the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. So the high priest representing the people enters Eden and recovers the benefits of the tree of life, life as it is intended to live for God's people. And on the right side is the table for bread. It was about the size of a coffee table, three feet long, two and a fourth feet tall. It was covered with gold and had golden plates and dishes on it. And most importantly, it had 12 loaves of bread on it called the bread of the presence. The priest would eat the loaves every Sabbath day and replace them with fresh loaves. And it symbolized that God invited his people into his home to share a meal with them That's the kind of relationship He wants with us. It symbolized that God's loving, providential care of His people to provide for their daily needs. So Jesus leads us in praying, give us this day our daily bread. And even more than both of these, it symbolized our ultimate need for God Himself, God's Word. So Deuteronomy 8, man does not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord to get home. We need His Word. We need His Word. Then straight ahead, right in front of the majestic veil to the most holy place, the high priest would come to the altar of incense. And it was a small gold-plated altar, one and a half feet wide and long and three feet tall. And it was intimately associated with the most holy place, although on the other side of the big veil. The reason for that is the smoke from the altar of incense would go through the veil into the very presence of God. Animals weren't offered on the altar of incense Incense was only offered on it, and the incense symbolized the prayers of the people. That if I can't physically go behind the veil, I can speak to you through the veil. And it was related to the bronze altar, both being altars, but also the fact that morning and evening there was a burnt offering at the bronze altar for sin. Morning and evening the incense was offered, which taught the people that my prayers to God are acceptable through the blood of a sacrifice. Finally, he'd pass through the veil, enter the heart of the tabernacle, and see the most important of all the pieces of furniture. Actually, he wasn't even supposed to look at it. It was the Ark of the Covenant. And it was this gold-plated box, almost four feet long and a little over two feet wide and tall. On the lid of this Ark, this gold box, on either end of it, were golden cherubim again, and they were facing each other with their wings stretched out over the ark as if somebody should be enthroned right there. The lid of the ark was called the mercy seat, literally cover, 
derived from the word meaning to make atonement, to cover sin, to cleanse us from our sin, and to clothe us with righteousness so that God's wrath would be turned. So remember, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would sprinkle blood of the Lamb over the mercy seat and make atonement for the tabernacle, the priests, and the people. It was because he did that yearly that all their daily sacrifices could be accepted. And the box was the dimensions of a king's footstool. And so why is that? Except it symbolized God's footstool. So the image is God is enthroned in heaven, flanked by cherubim, and had his feet in the most holy place in the midst of his people. Heaven touches earth in the most holy place. God reigns in their midst, inside the box. Therefore, were the two tablets of the testimony, the Ten Commandments. The idea is that God brings them into His presence. He rules over them in justice with His law of love. And yet, even though this is human flourishing, we rebel against that law over and over and over again. So how can we ever get into God's presence except that over God's law is the mercy seat, the place of mercy, and blood accumulated year after year, and God was enthroned above that. Intervening between our rebellion and God's holy justice is God's mercy in the blood. Therefore, we can enter God's presence by sacrifice. It's a map back home. And yet, as wonderful as all this was, the greatest of all visual aids, it only pointed to the real thing, to ultimate spiritual realities, to Jesus, our true high priest. And so Jesus comes expressly to fulfill all aspects of the tabernacle for us and in this way lead us back home. So John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, And we have seen His glory. Glory is the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And that word dwell is the word for tent. The word that would be the word for tabernacle. And John is saying the true tabernacle just came home to live next to you and be your next door neighbor. Home has arrived in the true tabernacle such that Jesus in John 2 would look at the Pharisees and say, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up again. By my destruction and resurrection, I'm bringing the reality of the tabernacle to you, and I become for you the way, the truth, and the life. He's the perfect sacrifice for sins. The cross of Christ is the true bronze altar. It's our most important furniture. It's His precious blood that atones for our sin, that cleanses you and clothes you. It took the blood of the God-man to do so, an animal can never do it. He's the true bronze basin. He's living water that cleanses you of all your dirt, makes you spotless before Himself. He's the true golden lampstand. He's light that dispels your darkness, whatever that might be. 
He's life who gives you eternal life, abundant life that overcomes your death. He's our tree of life. His cross was a tree of death for him. But for sinners like you and me, it's life. He's the true bread of the presence. He, can, he says he comes down from heaven. If we eat his flesh and drink his blood, we have life. He's our true altar of incense. If we ask it in Jesus' name, God says he's going to do it. He sits in God's right hand, always talking about you. And he's our Ark of the Covenant. He's the king. And he's the king we live in his presence. He's the king who brings us under his loving rule. And he's the king who pays for our default and failure by his blood at the cross, covering us with his blood and righteousness. Therefore, when Jesus says it's finished and gives up his spirit at the cross, God reaches down his hand and he takes hold of that four inch thick veil that needed a hundred men to carry and he rips it from top to bottom. And he says, because Jesus is the true tabernacle, there are no restrictions. You enter my presence and I know you and you know me. And so in Christ, our true tabernacle, just like they would leave the fallen world and enter an outpost of heaven, even so we leave identity with this fallen world and become identified with heaven. We go back to Eden. We go back home. And one day, on that final day, Jesus is going to return. And when he does, he's going to recreate this whole broken world and he's going to glorify it. The heavenly city will descend on a new mountain of God. God's throne will be stationed on earth. The river of life will flow from below the throne. Trees of life will grow on either side of the river. The glorious city will have the same length, width, and height, all equal, like a cube. It all becomes a most holy place where God dwells in our midst. There's no need of a sun because God is its light and the Lamb is its lamp. And we will enjoy intimate fellowship with God around a table, not just bread, but at the wedding feast of the Lamb. And we're not just invited guests, we're the bride. And there will be no more mourning and crying and pain, for the old order would have passed away. And the whole world becomes Eden and life as it's supposed to be. And God looks at you in Christ and he pauses and he smiles and he looks you in the eye and he says, welcome home. And this is what you're made for. And you're here and you belong. And that's the gospel. And that's what you have now by faith in Christ. Do you know Jesus as your true tabernacle? Have you come home to him? And may it be, God's people said, Amen. Let's stand.